0: Again, we return this afternoon in our studies of the Word of God to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3. In our previous sermons from Genesis chapter 3, we've examined the curses that were pronounced after Adam and Eve fell into sin, a curse directly pronounced on the serpent, not directly on Adam and Eve, but upon what would happen in terms of their particular callings. And we've also noted the grace of God's promise concerning the seed of the woman and the grace of God's provision of a covering for Adam and Eve. Now, this afternoon we come to the conclusion of this sad event, and we are going to read about it now, beginning with verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Once again, let's pray for the help of God in opening up His Word. Holy Father, as we read these words, we are stricken with grief, seeing the effects of sin upon the whole world, not only upon Adam and Eve, but upon ourselves. We confess that we have participated in that which took place, and we are deserving of the same exclusion. That Adam and Eve experienced. And yet we do thank you for the entreaties and for the welcome that is to be found in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, having considered these things, to go forth from this place, broken and grieved over our sin, but filled also with faith and hope in our Redeemer. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In 1952, the celebrated author John Steinbeck published a novel in which he sought to explore the human condition, and he sought to explore the issues of the struggle for acceptance, the self-destructiveness of the depravity of the human condition, and the burden of its guilt. And Steinbeck developed his plot loosely along the lines of the events of Genesis chapter four, in which Cain murdered his brother, and he becomes a restless wanderer upon the earth. And appropriately, Steinbeck, he gave his book the title, East of Eden, and this reflected the words of Genesis four and verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. This title, East of Eden, it also is a reflection upon Genesis chapter 3 and verse 23, which speaks about God driving Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden and on the hardship and the toil of being expelled from the Garden on account of their sin. And further on into this account, we're going to notice some of the similarities and some of the differences between Steinbeck's novel and the biblical account. Now, as we look at this account, our first three points that are listed there in your outlines, they come right from the words we read in Genesis chapter 3 in the record we have of the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. We have, first of all, in verse 22, God's summation, in verse 23, Adam's expulsion, and in verse 24, Eden's protection. And then... As time allows, our last two points are going to draw not directly from this passage, but will also draw upon several other passages of Scripture that, shed, that, let, that shine their light back upon this passage. But first of all, this episode begins with God's summation. and This is found in verse 22. And Again, I want to read, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil, and now, lest he put out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live for, forever. Now in these words, God dialogues with himself. It's another subtle implication of the Trinity. He speaks about us, the plurality. And he has a dialogue with himself. And this dialogue contains God's summation, or summary, of what has happened, and of the situation now that has resulted from sin. And this dialogue, this summation begins, first of all, with an observation. Behold, he says, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now in verse 5, Satan had said, God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now in a very limited sense, what the serpent said was true. But the impression that the serpent tried to convey with the words, convey one thing. And what God says about coming to a knowledge of good and evil is quite different. The serpent, you see, he held forth the prospect that we will be like God. And this will bring unheard of acquisitions of delight and and gifts and and insights that, that we've never had before. And this was obviously a deceptive lie. In no way did Adam and Eve gain divine attributes by violating God's command. But in what way, then, did Adam become like God? He became like God by rebelliously claiming moral autonomy. He became a kind of God to himself in the sense that he had chosen to become a law to himself. But in reality, Adam's self-deification as Henry Blocker puts it, "It was a mere pitiful aping of God. In no way did their rebellion actually elevate them to God's place. By shrugging off God's sovereignty, by shrugging off God's command, they far from became lords, they became the slaves of sin. And their supposed autonomy or freedom was an illusion. It is impossible to escape the lordship of God. As Blocker also adds, the crazy little God with his absurd pretensions is not God and never shall be. All he can do is die. And yes, it was true that they came to an experimental knowledge of the good and the evil that now they didn't have before. But this experimental knowledge, instead of elevating them to unknown heights, as Satan suggested, it sank them to hither known unknown experiences of grief, and brokenness. They had thought they would be gainers by their sin, but in reality, their so-called gain was a terrible loss. They failed to gain anything that was worth having. And not only did they fail to gain any blessing that was previously unexperienced, they lost what they previously had, namely, unsullied fellowship with God. They found nothing and they lost everything. Now, even their so-called autonomy or freedom, it was in reality a loss. Donald Gray Barnhouse imagines a man who jumps out of a plane without a parachute and he's there 20,000 feet. And the pilot, he could say, well, that man has become as one of us knowing altitude and gravity. But unlike the pilot, the man, he could not maintain his altitude Nor could he resist gravity, and he would quickly plummet to his death. And likewise, Adam, he sought for divine autonomy, but he couldn't truly achieve this autonomy. And his so-called autonomy was a terrible fall. He plunged to his death. To use a different metaphor, Adam was like a man who lives in a country with a strong, stable, benevolent government, but he declares himself an anarchist, and he repudiates the law of the land. But his revolt, he gains him nothing of the, of the benefits of, of the sound rule. He only suffers the certainty of condemnation. And even though Adam supposedly emancipated himself from God, and he became a law to himself supposedly, he never can really escape the boundaries of God's law or the rule of God. When a God's summation of the situation, having noticed, first of all, an observation... His summation continues with his mention of a complication. And it's kind of like an aside that is stuck at the end of the verse. Verse 22b, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now taken by itself, this concern suggests that the man had not yet eaten of the tree of life. And yet, nowhere in the previous dialogue between God and Adam and Eve did God forbid access to the tree of life. And if they had previously eaten, what God says here, it implies that they already have eternal life. If that was the case, that they had eaten, and eating gives them eternal life. And if this was the case, by their sin, did they lose their eternal life? And if one can lose your eternal life, how is it eternal life? So we can ask these kinds of questions that the Bible doesn't specifically answer in this specific place. And we could go on and on asking these questions, but they're somewhat beside the point here. I'm inclined to think that what God says here implies that they had not yet eaten of the tree of life. But whatever the case, what God seems to be concerned about is this. He is concerned about the eternal prolongation of their life in a sinful state. If Adam and Eve has been allowed to live forever in this sinful state, they would have lived eternally as sinners. And this would have frustrated God's purpose to save them. Now the tree of life in the garden, it seems to have served as something of a sacramental element or emblem of the eternal life that can only come through personal communion with the true and the living God. Adam's sin broke fellowship then with this God. And it separated him from the spiritual life that can only be found in God. And here then is the, the great lesson of being, that's being hammered home right away at this point. Sin separates us from true life. Now in Eden, in their sinless state, Adam and Eve anticipated an eternity of life with God. If they had not sinned, and if they had eaten of the tree of life, if they continued to fellowship with God, It would be eternal life in God, who is the source of life. But the serpent speaking for Satan recommends sin as the way to enjoy life with a capital L. And contrary to God's warning, he whispers in their ears, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God. In a wide variety of ways, for thousands of years, Satan has been whispering the same lie into our ears. Young people are assured that by indulging in what the Bible condemns as sexual sin, that they will discover true satisfaction, even the highest ecstasies that life has to offer. Even in our own city, SUNY has a reputation for being a party school. And the partying lifestyle in which booze flows freely and which hookups abound, this is set before young people with a brimming cup, so to speak. And those that have imbibed Satan's lie with their faces beaming with joy, they look upon you and they say, come and join us in the fun. Don't be a prude. This is life. This is life that's worth living here. Why would you miss out? The woman whose marriage has become dull meets a handsome man who pays more attention to her, makes her feel more like a real woman than she's felt like in years. And so she falls for Satan's lie that marital fidelity is actually a little bit overrated. And Satan convinces her that unless she explores her new options now, she's going to be, it's going to pass her by. She's going to be condemned, you see, to a miserable life for the rest of her days. She won't have life, you see as it could be enjoyed in the options being offered to her now. The young professional who never can seem to get higher than a certain point in his company. He hears of the fabulous vacations that some of his colleagues enjoy. He's enticed by the luxury cars they drive and by the gorgeous houses that they live in. But he also realizes that these advancements they go along with, going along with all the woke policies of the company. And he knows that getting ahead means many weekends uh, in which he will be away from God's house and his Lord's days instead of being in worship with the Lord they will be in clients and with meetings and the like. But after all he convinces himself these are little concessions you see that one is to make you see if he's going to enjoy the good life. And so Satan, you see, again, he offers them life, a life that he, of his kind and his d- definition. And right from the start, there in the garden, Satan peddled the lie that the good life is found in disobeying God. And what was the good life that they found? Well, stop and look for a moment at poor Adam, with his head bowed down, his face covered in shame. Look at him. Can you also see the anguished look on Eve's face? But this isn't just Adam and Eve. This is you. This is me. This is all of us whenever we decide to go our own way rather than God's way. Jesus, you remember, contrasts the true outcome of the devil's lies with his purpose in coming into the world. And he said the thief, the devil, the thief, he comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. But if you refuse the life that can only be found in God, the life that can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have not that life, but a life that is full of deception and sorrow. What you will have is death even in life. And this will be followed by eternal death. Paul spoke of the widow living in her sin, saying the widow now lives for pleasure. She is dead even while she lives, 1 Timothy 5, 6. That's the kind of life that the devil offers. Steinbeck's East of Eden, it shows us the inevitable result of buying Satan's lie by chronicling the fate of Kathy Ames, a troubled young woman who has murdered her parents and become a prostitute. And one night, Kathy is badly beaten and left on the doorstep, and the kind, generous Adam Trask takes her in. He cares for her. He falls in love with her, takes her as his wife. But after they start their life together, she gives birth to a couple of sons. She violently assaults him and flees their marriage. Before long, she's working again in a brothel where she, through cruelty and cunning, she becomes the owner eventually. And for years she mocks the so called righteousness of society. She extols the excitement that she's discovered, you see, through her sin. And yet by the end of this book, racked with self loathing and despair, she violently ends her life. Steinbeck's depiction of life, the life of sin, is confirmed by the Bible and by experience. And whereas sexual holiness strengthens love within marriage, sinful sexual adventures, they leave men and women scarred and broken. Alcoholism and substance abuse, they lead to broken marriages and ruined careers and destroyed children and crimes of desperation. Hatred leads to self-destruction and the destruction of everybody else in reach. Proverbs 9 depicts depicts sin as a seductress, enticing simpletons from her doorway. Stolen waters is sweet, she cries, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. How many have fallen prey to her soul-destroying seductions? But the fool does not know that the dead are there, and that her gates are in the depths of Sheol. Proverbs chapter 9 tells us. Sin separates us from that life which can only be found in God. And because of his sin, fallen Adam has to be expelled now from that place of life, even from the garden. Lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life, God says, and eat and live forever in his sins. Well, this is God's summation. The situation as God sees it. This brings me in the second place to speak about Adam's expulsion. After summing up Adam's dire situation and noting that he was ineligible now to eat of the tree of life, God did what he had to do. He excommunicated Adam and Eve from the garden. We read in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Now here we have a sad account, the account of Adam's Expulsion from the garden. Now recall for a moment the rich and the lush environment that Adam had enjoyed. The situation in which there were trees that were pleasant to the eyes and good for food. The tree of life in the midst of the garden. The river that continually watered the flowers and watered the plants and the vegetation and the trees. The gold and the precious stones in abundance and reflect then on the enormity of our loss together with Adam. Every generation, we long for paradise. We long that this would be replaced. And we vainly seek for utopias. And politicians, they capitalize upon this desire for utopia. They never give up promising such utopias. Maybe they will design a rural commune in which everybody can get along or perhaps a planned community in the suburbs, or enterprise zones in the city, or a free enterprise economy from the opposite standpoint. And all these politicians are promising things that they can't deliver. They can never deliver utopia. They can never deliver paradise. And we need to remember that there once was a real utopia. There was once a perfect world. And Adam was placed in the garden and he was given the delightful job of keeping and tending to that garden. But now, because of his sin, he has to be sent out of this utopia, out of this paradise. And he's excommunicated from the presence of God. Now, the Hebrew word that's translated sent in this verse, will read in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden, This is often rendered sent in the Old Testament. It's a common meaning for the word. In the English translation, sent is usually a neutral in its idea, just as the Hebrew word is. It's far more common when we use the word sent to say I sent Johnny out to get the mail. That's the ordinary way in which we use the word sent. But it's also possible for that word to be used in a negative way. The judge sent the man to prison. And here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 23, I think commentator Hamilton's stronger translation, expelled, I think, expresses the meaning better, therefore. It's one thing for it to be said, the teacher sent Tommy to the school principal to get some extra paper. And it's quite another thing to say the principal expelled Tom from school. But there's an even stronger word than this word that's used in the next verse, in verse 24, where it says, so he drove out the man. And this is the word that the Lord chooses to use, for instance, in Exodus 34, 11, when God says, behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite. And in that verse, he refers to a forcible, even violent expulsion, the driving out by means of armies, battling other armies, and being victorious. No pleasant little, little con- conduct here. It refers to a forcible, violent expulsion. And repeatedly in the Old Testament, God uses that word to depict this very thing. Now, in our text, we don't read that God merely asked Edom and Adam and Eve to leave. He didn't say, well, you know, this is not a very good situation. I think it would be better for you to, to just, you know, let's, this deal we didn't work out very well. Let's try it over here. That's not what God did. He doesn't just ask them to leave. He forcibly expels them from the place of his special presence. And something similar happens today when an employee is fired from a job and he is reluctant to go. And so the security officers come and clean out his desk and escort him out the door. He's effectively kind of politely taken, but he is forcibly being removed. In Genesis 4.14, the same Hebrew word is used of Cain's being driven out from the presence of the Lord. And the word is used repeatedly of divorce and dispossession of a woman being driven out of a home. As Kenneth Matthews puts it, Adam and Eve are out in the cold. Adam and Eve don't even leave the garden, you see, of their own will here. And they don't get a gentle escort to the edge of the garden. They are thrown out, they are driven out. And apparently, they are cast out to the east. For in verse 24, we read that the cherubim that was then placed at the eastern entrance of the garden was there to guard against re-enter, entry to the garden. Seems like they were driven out to the east. And hence, the title of John Steinbeck's book and of his sermon, also East of Eden. And confirmation of this direction that, was, that, that uh, was afterwards used, it comes again when Cain is banished further, further east, where he's banished to the land of Nod, east of Eden. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 14. But the main lesson that's being conveyed here, this whole picture of Adam and Eve's expulsion, the main lesson is that sin separates us from the presence of God. Sin separates us from communion and fellowship with God. And previously there was intimate communion with God, but now sin has intruded. There's alienation now from God. As A.W. Pink comments, the moral significance of this is plain. It was impossible for them to remain in the garden and continue in fellowship with God. He is holy, and that which defiles cannot enter into his presence. Sin always results in separation. And so we read in Isaiah 59:2, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you. The scene of Adam and Eve trudging out from the garden has often been depicted by artists. You can Google different art paintings that have been made over the centuries, especially back in the Renaissance. And one of the most vivid renderings of this event was a fresco that was painted around 1425, by Masaccio, on the, one of the walls of the Bronacchi chapel in Florence, Italy. It was entitled appropriately, The Expulsion of Adam and Eve from Eden, from the Garden of Eden. And it's not the most beautiful picture painted of this event, it's, but it's perhaps the most realistic picture. Masaccio he depicts the man and the woman as being driven out by a sword-bearing angel who hovers overhead Adam clutches his horrified face in his hands. Eve's head is thrown back slightly, with her mouth agape in a cry of heart-rending anguish. As they trudge away from the garden, the shame is painfully evident in their posture. And Under their feet is nothing but the dull, brown, hard soil of the desert. Now thrust out from the garden where God had provided lush vegetation for Adam to work and keep. Now, verse 23 tells us he was driven out to till the ground from which he was taken. In contrast to the abundance of Eden, Adam must now bring forth the meager results of his own back-breaking and blister-inducing labor. His toil would be a daily reminder of God's sentence, cursed is the ground for your sake. And obeying God would have enthroned Adam in paradise. Now he is a slave to the soil itself. Day after day, he's enslaved to the very ground from which he came. This is the world east of Eden. This, my friends, is our world. Adam and Eve, they're driven out away from God. And life away from God's consoling and cheering presence is a barren waste. James Boyce, he comments, saying this, What has brought them to such a sorry state? The culprit is sin. The consequence is separation from the one who is altogether loving. Let us learn then that sin does matter and that the devil is wrong, when he says that sin will not hurt. Sin disrupts that greatest of all relations, that between a man or a woman and God. Now before returning to the third image in this dreadful event, we would do well to pause and reflect on the manner in which this picture of Adam and Eve driven out to the east of Eden, how this is relevant as an explanation of the world that we live in. This is of great help in us being realistic and seeing what we see going on around us. Even in this fallen world, yes, creation still wonderfully testifies to the loving care of God. He's a providential, caring God that still provides for his creatures in spite of the ground being cursed. But clearly things have gone catastrophically wrong. The geniuses in our university, they're the great geniuses, you see, they're always seeking to analyze what, how, how we can fix things. And they propose one solution after another. But God shouts to us in our pain that it is sin that has brought the sin upon us. It's not that we need to tinker with this or tinker with that and thereby get our situation corrected. We need to deal with sin. That's the issue. And as we see our world being ripped apart in recent days, Is anybody listening to what God says and what's taking place? The depth of mankind's hatred for one another, it seems to know no bound. What kind of monsters are so full of hate that they chop off the heads of babies and burn whole families alive? What is it that drives men to go to a gathering in which women are gathered together as for a musical celebration of peace and then mow them down by the hundreds? What is it that's bringing out huge crowds by the thousands all over the world to celebrate these murderers as heroes and freedom fighters that are earning special places in paradise? What kind of hate would drive college students egged on by their own professors in the most prestigious schools of our country to call for the complete annihilation of Israel? Was it not enough that once in our history we tried this final solution of the Jews? What inspires people to cry out again, hail Hitler? What is it that drives them to cry from the river to the sea? What is it that stirs up similar hatred against Christians? Why has there been such an outpouring of mockery and hate against our newly elected Speaker of the House, all because of his open confession of Christ? What drives our politicians to label evangelical Christians as the most dangerous terrorists in our land? What drives them to this hate? We know the answer here in this chapter. And coming down to the domestic level, what is it that explains our strife-torn homes? What, what is it that explains why it is that the most dangerous thing for a police to do is to go to, a, to, to, to solve a domestic's dispute? What is it that tears so many families apart? What is it that makes our children cyber bullies against one another on social media? What is it that drives those that are in charge of our children to think that's it's a good idea to mutilate them and that this is somehow loving affirmation? How does anybody in their right mind think this is the way to show love to our children? Is this really the good life that Satan promises? Why are we still falling for these lies? Well, at first, Steinbeck's East of Eden, it was poorly received by critics. They resented its clear allusions to Genesis and accused him of moralizing And yet, the book soared to the top of the bestseller list, and he was flooded with letters of deeply affected readers. And in the 70 years since that book was published, it's averaged over 50,000 copies per year. And what was behind this impact? I think Richard Phillips, who's been very helpful for me in thinking this thing through here, I think he's right when he writes this, that by drawing from Genesis, Steinbeck was giving crucial insight into the world in which his readers were struggling, a world that is hard and broken and alienated from God. And it's Genesis 3, you see, that explains why country after country descends into madness and explains why, contrary, you see, to societal evolutionists, man is not evolving upward. His hate continues to bring him downward. Well having looked at God's summation and then at Adam's expulsion I want you to notice with me now in the third place Eden's protection. We read of his protection in verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The expulsion of the man from the garden, it wasn't a temporary ad hoc arrangement. Something had taken place that could not be undone, at least in the near future, and God made sure that throughout the entirety of the 930 years that Adam lived, he would not be allowed to re-enter that garden. And in order that this might not take place, he appointed a twofold guardianship of that garden. First of all, we read in this verse of burning cherubim. Now, we're used to seeing cherubs depicted on Valentine's Day cards as fancy little chubby angels that shoot arrows of love into people's hearts. That's our idea, you see, of cherubs. But in the Bible, the cherubim are mighty angels. They serve in the immediate presence of a holy God. And likenesses of the cherubim were embroidered on the inner curtain of the tabernacle, later on of the temple. They indicated the special presence of a holy God behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. And you can read of that embroidery in Exodus 36, 35. We also read of them in Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 3. I'd like you to turn with me to chapter 10. We'll look at that for a moment moment here. But first of all, in Ezekiel 9, 3, that place, the glory of God that ascends from the midst of the cherubim and presumably it ascends from the Holy of Holies where the cherubim are around the, the presence of the Lord. And it goes from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple, signaling that the glory of God is about to depart from the temple. And then in chapter 10, in the first five verses, we are given more detail about that event. Notice with me what we read here. Ezekiel 10:1. and I looked and there in the firmament, there was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like the sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels and under the cherub. There's the cherubim. Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. And then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim. cherubim. And paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when He speaks. And then in the following verses, we're given more detail about this event. We read of an elaborate description of these creatures. And for instance, in verse 14, we read, each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub, second face, the face of a man, the third, the face of a lion, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. And eventually, they don't stop at the threshold of the temple. Both they and the Lord, they depart the threshold of the temple to the east gate of the Lord's house. And we read in verse 20, this is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chebar, and I knew that they were cherubim, and cherubim is the plural for cherub, each one had four faces, and each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Chebar, their appearance and their persons, they each went straight forward. These are the awesome creatures that are spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. In that chapter, they are stationed as guardians of that sacred place where God manifested his special presence. In this capacity, they function like the Levites did that were posted on the outside of the tabernacle. And those Levites were charged to strike down anyone who encroached upon the sacred precincts of God's presence in the tabernacle. And read of it there in Numbers chapter 1. But only in Genesis 3 do we read of their being employed in a policing activity. It's usually they're just in the presence of God. It's not that they're striking people down and the like. But at Genesis 3, there's something of police guards and we should notice that in this chapter, they are not said to guard God himself, but rather they are said to guard the Garden of Eden. And Usually they're depicted as the holy attendants of God in God's presence. But here in Genesis chapter 3, they're depicted as security guards to guard the tree of life from the unholy hands of rebel mankind. Now it's very possible, and here I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. It's very possible that although they are not called in this place cherubim, the creatures which seem to be so similarly described in Revelation four are also cherubim. In Revelation four, verses six and following, we read this. Before the throne, this is the throne of God, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had the face of a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and who is to come. Now, the main element that comes through in all of these descriptions is that they are associated with the glory and the presence of God, a holy God at that. They're not like what we might call the ordinary angels that were sent on various errands. In Genesis 3, they are stationed at the gates of Eden to bar people from entering into the place of God's special presence. And again, we are reminded by this, that this is the result of our sin, Sin bars us from God's presence. This is the greatest of all the tragedies of the results of sin. It's driven us out from God and it keeps us from God. This was the first guardian, these cherubim. The second guardian at the gate of Eden was a flaming sword. Verse 24, it's described as a flaming sword which turned every way. the form of the verb that's translated turned it, it indicates continuous action continually turning in all the directions you can't get through it you see because of this and the way it's described it indicates that it's not wielded by the cherubim but rather that it turns on its own somehow and this shows us that the problem of sin it's not confined to the way that it alienates our hearts from God that's not the only thing that it does it makes us draw away from God. It also shows us that it alienates God from us. He's turned against us. We are alienated from him because of our sins. God's holiness, it cannot, it won't allow Adam to just saunter back into his presence with hat in hand and say, well, I change my mind. By whatever means that he needs to use, Adam will never be permitted back into the garden. The way back is not just hard, it is impossible. Man cannot save himself. Have you ever seen, my friend, this is your problem? You can't get back into God's presence. You can't get back into life on your own. You can't save yourself. Have you ever seen that this is your problem? Have you ever seen that apart from a savior, you will be barred from God's presence for all eternity? Apart from Christ, there will be no escape on Judgment Day. Adam went on to live for 930 years, Genesis 5-5. During this time, he never again set his foot in the Garden of Eden. He never was allowed to stretch out his hand to take of the tree of life and eat it, that he might live forever. I think we can also assume that never in all those years did he see the face of the blessed God that he saw face to face before he sinned. And yet I think we can also be sure that there must have been created in his heart a longing for that face, a longing for that fellowship that he once knew. He must have, having remembered that promise of a of a coming savior the coming seed that was promised and and the curse that was pronounced upon the serpent he must have longed for the arrival of that seed and you remember how when one of the children is born they think well maybe this is the one and god had also prefigured the atoning work of christ by the clothing you remember that he put upon them and this leads us to take a look at two realities that are anticipated by this passage We've looked at Genesis 3 for our first three points, but now for fourth and fifth points, unlike these first three points, which I've approached with heaviness, these points I approach with great joy. There's great encouragement as we look back upon this passage by the light of other portions of the word of God. This brings me in the fourth place to draw your attention to God's provision. Steinbeck, he doesn't seem to have believed that there's a way of man for escaping his situation, his life, his barren life east of Eden. His novel, it concludes with little more than despair. The best that it can offer is a few platitudes about man's free will. But Genesis three, it concludes with hints about a way by which man might be reconciled to God. And these hints, they're expanded upon in the rest of the Bible. And the passages that we looked at in Ezekiel and Revelation, they are not the only passages that speak of the significance of cherubim. The passages that we looked at stress the presence of the cherubim in the burning as the burning attendance of God's holy presence. But images of the cherubim, they're also featured with great prominence in connection with the adorning of the tabernacle and later on of the temple. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 26. Exodus chapter 26, in verses 31 to 33 of this chapter, instructions are given about the construction of a thick veil that was to be, this is inches thick, it's so thick, it's to be hung between the main room of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies, you remember, God would manifest his special sacred presence, And the veil, it symbolizes this same deadly barrier you see that is like at the the gate of Eden. The priest, when he went in once a year, had to wear these golden bells to make sure that he didn't die. And in verse 31 of this chapter, we read of these cherubim that it shall be woven, this veil, it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. And even more significant is the fact that on the inside not just on the curtain that's on the outside on the inside there's something greatly significant in the holy of holies and that place is only one piece of furniture it's the ark of the covenant where god's glory manifested itself it was a wooden box that was coated in gold and inside of it was stored the 10 commandments indicating god honoring his holiness And on top of that wooden box was something exceedingly significant. It was a golden cover called the mercy seat, or as some it the atonement cover. And notice with me, turning back from this chapter to chapter 25, what we read beginning in verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, verse 17. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Now these instructions, they show us that the cherub not only guarded the presence of God. They not only guarded the way to God to keep sinners from God who are yet in their sins. But they also kept open a way in which sinners could come to God. And so we read in verse 22, God says, and there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. And from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything that I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And those of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there was on one day a year, the day of atonement, in which one person alone was allowed, the high priest was allowed to enter through the veil and stand in the presence of the ark of the covenant, which was overshadowed by these cherubim. And there he took the blood of a sacrificial bull, which was offered for his own sins, and he sprinkled it upon that mercy seat that was over the ark between the cherubim. And this this ritual, it reminded the people that the barrier between God and sinners, it was still standing. But it also pointed to the fact that there is a high priest that's gonna come someday with truly efficacious blood and he's going to offer it to God. And he will not have to offer it for his own sins, first of all, like the priest, and then offer a go for the sins of the people. But he will come pure and spotless. And he will open up the way to God. It points to that day which the high priest will come with an efficacious atonement. Offer it to God. And then because of this, the flaming sword of God's justice can be removed. In addition to these instructions about the tabernacle worship, we have other texts, many of them in the Old Testament. I wanted to speak of them, but I think we'll just have to pass by them. But again and again, they refer to the fact that, for instance, Hezekiah, he prays to the God that dwells between the cherubim, that God will hear our prayers, and he receives sinners there at the mercy seat. The day finally came when Jesus of Nazareth was led up by the Roman soldiers To be crucified outside the walls of ancient Jerusalem. He was the true lamb of God, the spotless sacrifice because of his perfectly holy life. Because he is the divine son of God, he is sufficient, he in himself, to pay for the, the sins of all of his people. And Matthew's gospel tells us that after Jesus cried out from the cross with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. And then it adds this detail, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is miraculous. A thick, inches thick curtain and high up above beyond the reach of any man from the top where only God can rip it. It's torn from top to bottom. For thousands of years, the cherubim had stood sentry guarding, as it were, God's sacred presence. But when Jesus died, the veil was torn from top down. His justice was was satisfied, God's justice through the sacrifice that Jesus offered up in our behalf. And now you and I can enter freely into his presence through faith in the blood of our Savior. Genesis 3, you see, it concludes with an impenetrable barrier, cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. At first it seems that the way is going to be barred forever, But Jesus declares to you, he declares to me, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The way into God's special presence is now open to all who believe in Christ. I want you to give me a few extra minutes here. As we close, I think that I'd be remiss if I didn't at least say something about the fifth thing we have in your outline, which is Eden's anticipation. For 930 years, Adam never again saw the face of God, never again tasted, and never tasted the tree of life. How many times he must have lamented his sin. How he must have longed to be restored to the presence of God. And sadly, before this ever happened, at least in an external way, Adam died. But when Jesus returns, Adam is going to rise from the dead with a new body. And he will see God. He will enjoy the presence of Jesus, his Savior. And even anticipating that day, Job himself could say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Now none of us will ever return to the original Garden of Eden. We don't know what happened to it. The Bible never tells us. It's silent about this. But in the last chapter of the Bible, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. We read of that which will far surpass that garden. We read in Revelation chapter 22, wonderful words beginning with verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Heaven will restore a lost Eden. Everything that was lost will be restored. We will have access to the tree of life. We will enjoy the wonders of creation without the evidences of the fall. Fruitfulness and abundance will abound on every hand just as it was back then. And best of all, dear people, we shall see God as Adam saw God, and we will see him, and especially we will treasure it even more because we'll see the face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Heaven restores a lost Eden, but heaven surpasses a lost Eden. We ought to say that too. A garden is now replaced with a city. It will be not just the blessedness of a lonely pair, but it'll be nations that'll stream into that place. We will have fellowship with multitudes Multitudes born anew. Multitudes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Our experience will be richer. We will remember things from now their perspective of sorrow being replaced with gratitude and joy. We will understand now the mysteries that we could never understand. And the sinlessness of those that have been sinners. It will surpass the joy of Adam's sinless condition. He will overthrow with gratitude to God that he has forgiven us. And He's made us now, who were sinners, to be sinless. And He's confirmed us in that sinless, so that we will sinlessness. So we will never have to ever have to lose it. Think with me about the woman that was a sinner. She loved much because she was forgiven much. That will be this case with you and me. And there will be communion with God that will be sweet, and especially sweetened through our knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The fullness of God's revelation will be full of new wonders that will take eternity to explore. Dear people, heaven surpasses Eden. This is our prospect. Jesus, he's come to open the way to eternal life through his own shed blood. And the way now stands open to all. All who confess their sin. All who believe in the Lord Jesus. And if... Adam were here, if he could say anything to us, he would say it matters getting through this gate. I was shut out the gate. It matters now that you enter this gate. And for our encouragement we read in Revelation 22 and verse 14 Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter into the city by the gates. I want you now to take your hymnals and turn with me to a hymn that reflects upon this wonderful reality. We're going to close by singing together hymn number 601. 601. Father and our God, we do thank you that we do not live in that time of those 930 years in which there was so little revelation upon which to hang our hopes, but you've given unto us the full knowledge of what has been accomplished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what you shall provide for us who will put our trust in him. And now, O oh Lord, our God, we do pray that you would help us to live as those that Understand these things, not to live as those that are the fools, constantly believing the lies that are told to us by the devil. Help us to stay away from that which keeps us from you. Help us to remain in fellowship with you, having short accounts with you when we do sin. Help us, O Lord, again and again to remember what happened to us long ago, and remember what it has been done for us in Christ our Savior. Help us to live as the redeemed. Help us also to live in hope in this terrible world in which we live, knowing that this is not the end of the story. And we do thank you and praise you, Lord, that we have this prospect that you have set before us in which we will see your face above all and see the blessed face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have mercy, we do pray, for on anybody in this room that is still on the outside of the gates, still shut out from you because of their sins. Bring such ones, O Lord, to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus that they might enter in the last day and even now to enter in within the the veil. Help us, O Lord, even to treasure this privilege of prayer as we sang earlier, assembling together again and again at the mercy seat, the place of covering, where our sins are covered, where you receive us for the sake of Christ and his shed blood. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.